Well, let me tell you this morning, we are back in the book of Genesis. I've been preaching through this book for one year now. I'm now on chapter 12. Yeah. So, that kind of tells you what my pacing looks like, doesn't it? I try to get through a chapter each time. And thus far, I've been generally successful. Today will not be one of those days. Um, I will tell you right up front, um, there are a lot of times when you're preparing for a Sunday message where it's just encouraging and it's, it is blissful and, you know, you're spending a lot of time in study and in prayer and with the Lord and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's building you up. It's, um, this was not one of those times. <laughs> there are other times where it's laborious. Um, today will not be Christianity 101. If you have ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I could go to Bible college, or I wish I could go to seminary, today you get a taste of it. Today you'll get what, what a class would typically be, okay? So I'm saying that to, to prepare you, because we're going to talk about some big words and some big concepts, and I'm going to do my best to kind of explain those and flesh those out a little bit. And some of those concepts, I am going to tell you exactly where I land, and I'm going to try to persuade you to land on the same place. And some of them, I'm not. Some of them, I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to wrestle through the scriptures and come to the conclusion yourself. And I think any good student of the Word of God would take that and run with it. So, let's pray before we get into this. Father God, um, God help me today. I am slow of mind and slow of tongue. God, I need you to work through me, Lord, and be able to explain this out for your people, not for my good, but for their good. Father, let me hold your people in my heart. Let me preach and exhort and teach them, Lord, as the bride, as the love that you you ordain. They are your precious, special people. Let me hold that in my heart today as I, as I have the honor of explaining and extolling your word to them. I thank you for that, Lord. I ask that you superintend everything that's said here today, Lord, that it would be for your glory and not for mine or anyone else's. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So, uh, let's get to this. I want to read something to you. Pastor Dr. Robert Morgan, um, who I have a lot of respect for, even though I don't fall in the same lines of everything he believes theologically, I think he's a very godly man. I think he uh, struggles through the scriptures and um, does his best to be faithful to the text. He wrote a book called, or entitled, He Shall Be Called, 150 Names of Jesus and What They Mean to You. Here's what he had to say about Genesis chapter 12. Quote, A professor in Bible college told us that the division between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 was actually greater in importance than the division between the Old and New Testaments. The more I study the Bible, the more I'm convinced he was right. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God dealt with the whole earth on Moss, the creation, the family of Adam, the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel. God repeatedly demonstrated that the earth as a whole was bent toward corruption and destruction. The word earth occurs 92 times in Genesis 1 through 11. Starting in Genesis 12, however, God launched a brilliant plan to provide redemption for all humanity. He chose one man, Abraham, and gave him a set of seven remarkable promises. And as we read through the Bible, these promises unfold like forest ferns until all the realities of God's redemption are revealed. Now, I do agree with some of that. Except I have a big problem with what he defines as the beginning of God's plan of redemption. God did not start his plan of redemption with Abraham. God didn't start his plan of redemption in Genesis chapter 12. And we are told that over and over and over. We hear that a lot. And so it's just easy for us to pick that up. And I think the reason is because we live in a highly dispensational culture and that dispensational theology today has has mutated and permutated and branched out into a lot of different areas and we'll get into that here in just a little bit but 
I want you to realize this. God didn't start his plan of redemption with Abraham. He simply continued it through Abraham. He declared that plan of redemption before creation. In fact, he hinted at it in the what we call it's the proto-evangelium. All right, you Bible students, here's a good word for you. Proto-evangelium. Proto means first or before. Evangelium, right, from the Greek, uh, or Latin actually, euangelo, which is the good news. Proto-evangelium means literally the first time we see the gospel. Sometimes it's called the first gospel. Where is it at? Glad you asked. Genesis 3, if you want to turn there. Genesis 3, verse 15 says this. It's right after the fall of man. God is speaking to the serpent. He's addressing the serpent and he says this. I will put enmity, which is to say they will be enemies. We will be belligerents. I will put a fight between you. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, singular, and he, capital, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him, but he's going to destroy you. That is the proto-evangelium. That's the first time we see mention of God's plan of redemption. The scriptures, though, tell us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says this, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Second Thessalonians 2.13 tells us that God has chosen us for salvation since the beginning. Revelation 17.8 says our, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means God's plan of redemption did not start with Abraham. It started with him. God did choose one man, but it was not Abraham. <laughs> Abraham might have been his progenitor in the flesh, but the man that God chose was the only divine God-man, Jesus Christ. He was singular, the seed, not seeds of the woman. He didn't put enmity between the seeds of the woman and the seeds of the devil. He put enmity between the seed, one singular, Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption didn't start with Abraham. It started with Jesus Christ. It didn't start in Genesis 12. It started before the foundation of the world. And the reason I'm telling you that is if you don't understand that, it's really easy for you to get some theology pretty wonky. It is easy for you to get to the place. You can actually press this theological system to the place that we have people today who will say, well, there are separate plans of salvation. There's a plan of salvation for the Gentiles and there's a plan of salvation for the people of national genetic Israel. That is literally heresy. Why? Jesus himself said, no man comes to the Father except through me. There is no one that's going to sit in heaven one day, what is sometimes referred to as Abraham's bosom, that does not have the faith of Abraham. What was the faith of Abraham? He looked forward to God's coming Redeemer. Everyone ever saved has been saved through the same method. That's another problem with this theological system. This theological system, which I'm about to get into, and I am not excited about that, posits that there are different ways of salvation in different eras of time. That is nonsense. We are following the faith of Abraham. Now, Abraham looked forward to the coming Redeemer. We look backward in time to the Redeemer who's already come. But the salvation comes the same way. It is by grace through faith. It is not by works. It's never been by works. Paul said no one has ever been justified by works. Period. No one in the Old Testament was justified by works. No one in the New Testament was justified by works. No one will ever be justified by works. You will not earn your way to heaven. It is not possible to earn your way to heaven. Why? Because your righteousness and your sin are on separate dockets. Even if you could do lots of righteousnesses in and of your flesh, which, spoiler alert, you can't. Isaiah said all your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
Not your sins. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. And by the way, that's the same word for menstrual cloth. It's a pretty filthy rag, okay? Your righteousnesses. But your sins are on a separate docket. The good things you do cannot take away the bad things that you have done. And that's the problem. People become self-righteous when they go, oh, yeah, I have screwed up. But what I'll do to atone for that is I will do lots of good works. And that will actually make me able to earn my way into heaven. I was so blessed last night, middle of the night. Where's Buffett? What, what time was that? We were texting like one or two o'clock in the morning. You know, the only other person that keeps the same hours as me. Buff, like who else in the world sleeps three hours a night, Buff? Buff sends me a text and he was asking about Romans 4. He's like, you know, why does it say in Romans 4? It's a great question. So glad he asked. It shows me what the Lord is doing to him. By the way, I'll take a moment to brag on these people. I went to the BSU Thursday night and I was beyond blessed because every song we sang was rich with theological truth. Because Sean was up there. He leads the worship now. I was so blessed with that. And we sit down and, and... Buff gave the message, and it was so good. It was so weighty. He spent a lot of time studying it out, digging out the original meaning, and I was very, very proud of both of them. It's, in fact, it was hard for me driving home not to just cry, and I'm not a crier, but it was, it was hard for me because you know what I can remember? I can remember seeing these guys as freshmen and sophomores in high school. <laughs> Who theologically are they have you know they have no idea they haven't read the scriptures they had and yet you see what the Lord does through them and they grow increase in faith and the Lord uses them to bless others and it's it's awesome to watch there's lots of others I could brag on but it was anyway so here's what he sends me he says basically why is it in Romans 4 that he says to him who works it's counted as debt that's a great question Why does God say if you work for your salvation, it's not counted as faith or righteousness, it's counted as debt? Okay, let me explain something right up front. This is how workers and wages work. If you work for your boss, you're actually putting your boss in your debt, aren't you? I'm doing work for him throughout the week. He owes me. We get to the end of the week, and the way that he settles accounts is he gives me a wage. He says, you know what? I owe you. You've done work for me, and... um, I will now give you the, the, the wages of that work. I'm indebted to you. When you think that you can work for your own salvation, what you really are doing is you think somehow you can put God in your debt. Hey, God, you owe me. You owe me salvation. You should give it to me. Don't you see? I've worked for it. I earned it. And the Apostle Paul is coming against that and saying, you are ludicrous if you think you can earn salvation. You cannot put God in your debt. He is not indebted to you. He is not beholden to you, and he never will be. What happens? Well, when you have that mindset, you're... what kind of arrogance does it take to go, hey, I'm, I've earned salvation. It's due to me. We wouldn't say that, but self-righteousness is incredibly arrogant. Now, that doesn't bring you closer to God or salvation. That puts you farther away. You're, you're digging a deeper hole. I put it this way. My mom used to tell me this all the time. If you're digging yourself into a hole, the fastest way to dig yourself out of the hole is put down the shovel. Right? Stop digging. That's what essentially Paul was saying in Romans. Stop digging. You cannot work your way into salvation. There's no way that God will ever owe it to you. You cannot atone for the sin that you've done with the righteousness as you do. Somehow we all know that when it comes to the physical, and somehow we just forget that when it comes to the spiritual. Right? If somebody goes down the street and murders, if somebody comes in the door here and murders poor Abby, right? And we're like, yes, you had that coming. No. Obviously not. What if the guy goes, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Hey, listen, I'll serve everybody in the serving line. Well, well, cool. We're even then. No one would say that. That's ludicrous. Right? You got a guy, he kidnaps somebody, he goes out, he rapes and kills him, and he flees from the police, and for 10 years he just does good stuff. Man, I, he feels guilty, doesn't he? Do you ever feel guilty when you do something wrong? Sure. Is your natural reaction, well, I've got to atone for it? Yes. Yes, it is. We live in a performance society, a performance mentality. I'm going to atone for my own sin. Got news for you, you can't do it. This guy goes out and murders this little girl. And then he says, you know what? I'll atone for it. I'll feed the homeless. 
I'll clothe them. I'll, I'll give my money to the poor. One day, the, the police are going to knock on the door. Right? Mr. Smith, we're taking you in. Right? For the, for the murder of the Labby Gross. And what does he say? Well, you, you haven't seen me. You, you don't know what I did. I've been feeding the homeless. I've been, I've been doing all these great things. Can you imagine the police going, oh, you have? Well, well never mind. <laughs> You're good. High five. Way to go, buddy. No. What are you going to say? I mean, you know, I'm glad. Glad you did, but that doesn't take away what you, what you just did. It doesn't take away your sin. You cannot atone for your sin. You cannot work yourself in enough to be, for God to be indebted to you. Man, whose kid is that back there that's being so loud? Might be mine. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Let's read through Genesis. I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to verse 7. This is man, but there's just so much here. Genesis chapter 12, let's read 1 through 7. Now the Lord had said to Abram, "Get out of your country from your family, from your family. Leave your family behind." Okay, just so that we've got that straight. And from your father's house, leave your family behind, and you're leaving your daddy's house. Maybe he was a millennial. He was like still living with dad or something. I don't know. Abram, you're 60 now. You've got to leave, okay? No. Leave from your father's house to a land that I will show you. What land, God? Don't worry about it. I'm going to show you. Can you imagine the faith it takes to do that? Imagine the Lord telling you that. Hey, I want you to pack your stuff up. Where are we going? Ah, don't worry about it. Get in the car, start driving. Excuse me? I'll show you. Don't worry. Takes faith. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. In case you were wondering, God does not bless you so that you can spend it upon your own pleasures. He blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is so much in that verse, it will take me the next 15 or 20 minutes to unpack it. So Abraham departed, excuse me, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Get out of your country, away from your family. And Lot went with him. Notice something here? Well, he pretty much mostly obeyed God, right? Will this cause trouble later? Oh, man. Will this cause trouble later? Yes. Yes, it will. Will partial obedience ever cause you trouble? I promise you. Yes, it will. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. That's a really big oak, basically. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. By the way, it's probably also instructive to point out he was not the first person to call on the name of the Lord. Sometimes you hear that. Well, you had this, you know, they had the creation and the fall, and you had this big time of paganism, and then finally God calls Abraham, and he, he you know, reinstitutes proper worship of the true God. That is not true. Genesis 4, 7 says, from that day, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Job was not in Abraham's lineage. Job was probably older than Abraham. At the very least, he was a contemporary and did not live next to him, and yet Job was worshiping the true God, was he not? Yes, God said, have you considered my servant Job? 
Okay, so there was still worship of the true God going on. God's redemption plan, I'm going to stress it again, did not begin with Abraham. It simply continued through Abraham. I would love to go on and get down through verse 20. It's incredible to me that Abraham is married to Sarah, or Sarai at this point. She is 65. She's 65 years old. And she is so gorgeous that he literally says, look, when we go into this land, just tell people you're my sister because they'll want to kill me because you're so good looking at 65. Dude, Helena Troy had nothing on this girl. She must have been one gorgeous woman. Right? I think that's about like me and my wife, right? People look at me, they look at my wife, they're like, how did that ever happen? Like, because there's a God, brother. That's how. That's right. <laughs> so, let's get into this. Here's where we're going to go back to. Let's go back to verse 3, because we hear this in our culture over and over and over and over and over. Here's what I hear. I'll bless those who curse you, or I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right. Question. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Is that a personal or perpetual promise? I.e., is that a promise that God gives to Abraham and it is for Abraham only? Or does that promise endure later? The way you answer that is going to shape out a lot of your theology. I will argue that is a perpetual promise. Yes, it does go on. I think it does go on. However, I think the way that we often interpret it today is not good. Here's how the interpretation today basically goes down. The genetic Jews, those who are born of the physical lineage of Abraham, are God's chosen and blessed people. And if you bless the genetic Jews, the natural Israel, God will bless you. And if you curse the genetic Jews, God will curse you. Well, that's a real problem. Here's why that's a problem. Let, let, let's do this. Let me give you the interpretation of this verse through what is called a very dispensational lens, okay? We're 12 chapters deep into the Bible and we're already in eschatology. Great. Fantastic. That made me really excited to teach this this morning. What's eschatology? That's another big word. You hear that in Bible college and seminary. Eschatology is the study of end times, end time things, right? What's going to happen at the end of days? Where does the millennial reign take place? How does it happen? How is it administrated? All that good stuff, right? That's eschatology. The study of the church, who the church is made up of, and how God relates to it is called ecclesiology. Very good. Here we have the first piece, not the first piece, but a continuing piece, of ecclesiology and eschatology right here in Genesis chapter 12. I have heard this. I had a a man who was a pastor. He had been a seminary professor, and he was my mentor for many years. And he was fond of saying this. He was fond of saying, you know, people will fight over eschatology and they'll talk about the second coming of Jesus and they'll go to blows and they'll go to death over it. And there's people out there that have never heard that Jesus came the first time. Fair point. But eschatology is important. I hate to admit that because I really don't like getting into all the pieces of it. But the truth is your eschatology can actually frame out how you view the, the Bible as a whole. Your eschatological system can actually become, you ready for another big word, your hermeneutic. Hermeneutic means how you interpret the scriptures as a whole. The meta-narrative, the big picture of the scriptures can be interpreted through that. Let me give you the answer to this question from a typically classically dispensational manner. This is from the Enduring Word online commentary, which is, uh, what is that, the uh, Calvary Chapel, I think. This promise inherited, here's what he has to say, this promise inherited by the covenant descendants of Abraham, that is, the Jewish people, remains true today and is a root reason for the decline and death of many empires. When the Greeks overran Palestine and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. I don't disagree. When Rome killed Paul and others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. Rome soon fell. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Rome fell in 476. That's more than 400 years. I don't call that soon. I I mean, I could be wrong, but I think 400 years is a long time. I mean, it's almost twice as long as America's been a nation. I don't think that's soon. Forgive me for that. Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. 
That's possible. It was later, after the Inquisition against the Jews. But it was right after, after the Inquisition of the Jews. Then later they did the Inquisition against the Lutherans and the Protestants and even some of the Huguenots that had come over from France. And then Spain was reduced to rubble. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe there's a people that's a part of Israel who are a part of Israel by faith. And that God still watches over. Call me crazy. Poland fell after the pogroms. Hitler's Germany went down after its orgies of anti-Semitism. And Britain lost her empire when she broke her faith with Israel. This is one reason why the United States has been so blessed. The United States was one of the first modern nations to grant full citizenship and protection to the Jewish people. By the way, yes, I think that's a good thing. This promise has also affected the church. The times when the church took upon itself the persecution of the Jewish people were dark times indeed. Not only for the Jews, but also for the church. That's basically a very standard answer from a dispensational viewpoint. The question is, is that the whole story? And what is this dispensational stuff anyway? This is the part I've been looking forward to all day. Dispensationalism is a basic interpretive system and meta-narrative, that is big picture, for the scriptures, for the Bible. It considers biblical history as being divided up by God into dispensations, seven dispensations, okay? What are the seven dispensations? Uh, the age of innocence, that's creation to the fall. Then we have the age of conscience, which is the fall to the flood. Then there's human government, which is from the flood to Abraham. Then there's the, the, the dispensation of promise from Abraham to Moses. Then there's the dispensation of the law. From Moses to Jesus. Then there's the dispensation of grace. Sometimes that's called the church age. You know, this parenthetical time from Pentecost to the rapture. And then finally, it's the millennial kingdom, the seven dispensations. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, on the one hand, none of us would disagree that God has revealed himself to mankind progressively. Yes, that is true. God has revealed himself little by little. But that does not mean that he has changed his mode or administration of salvation over that time. The problem with dispensationalism is twofold. Number one, it posits that God will change the way he administers salvation. And that can get really ugly when we get into the New Testament. Number two, it basically says, well, here in the New Testament, there's two different people. There's the people of God, the church, and there's the people of Israel. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is a whole bunch of books in the New Testament, like Galatians, like Romans, like Ephesians. Let's go to some of that, in fact. If you're an extreme enough dispensationalist, by the way, I have, I have literally, I've been in a conference, a big conference, lots of pastors at this conference, massive conference, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I was invited there by one of their speakers. And we got there, and one of the guys speaking, if I told you his name, you'd know him, I promise, he's on TV all the time. And his thesis that day was, hey, Stop trying to evangelize the Jews. Because the genetic Jews are saved one way and the church is saved another. That is literally heresy. I don't care what your DNA is. There is one way to the Father and that is Jesus Christ. Period. And if you get someone in a system that believes there's two different ways, you have literally heresy. Jesus Christ himself said that. And by the way, in Ephesians, he said this. He said he has divided the wall between Jew and Gentile. He has crushed it. He destroyed it. In other words, you being Jew does not confer to you salvation. You must have faith in the Messiah. When dispensationalism is pressed to that extreme, it is literally heretical. All right. Let me skip up here and let's get into a few of these things and I'll come back. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. The whole book of Galatians is such a problem for this that they're, literally dispensationalists will say, well, the book of Galatians has to be by itself. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and then the book of Galatians is by itself, and the book of James is by itself, right? Because there are books in the New Testament that are for the Jews, and there are other books that are for the church, but they're not all the same. I am not kidding. That is really poor theology. And don't get me wrong, there's lots of different versions of dispensationalism out there, and some of them are much more faithful to the Scriptures. John MacArthur calls himself a leaky dispensationalist. 
But he's a whole lot closer to covenant theology than he is dispensational. The entirety of his dispensationalism is he does believe there is a future for national Israel because it will fulfill prophecy. Guess what? National Israel has been reborn, a nation reborn in a day. Isaiah 66. So I have a, you know, I have a hard time, you know, disputing that. That's as far as his dispensationalism goes. That's not very dispensational. He calls it leaky dispensationalism because he does believe that God is using national Israel in a prophetic sense. Got it. He does not believe that there are different ways of salvation or different modes or different books of the Bible for different people and all that good stuff. Here's what Galatians 3, let's start at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Maybe we should highlight that. Circle that in big red ink. Romans 2 says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And circumcision is not that that's outward in the flesh, but of the heart. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Let's go on to, uh, in, in Galatians. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, quote, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, not those who have genetic Israeli blood in their veins. Galatians 3.16, let's skip down a little bit, says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ? Who are the promises to? Christ. Who do the promises apply to? Those who are found in Christ. The promises are not to those who have just blood of Abraham in their veins. It's never been enough just to be a bloodline of Abraham. It's never been enough to have Abraham's blood, as it were, in your veins. It has always been, salvation has always been, by grace, through faith, in Christ. That was what caused so much problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That was what caused them to not understand the things that Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, you're not the ones that are blessing the earth. The Jews thought just them being on earth was a blessing to the earth. Here we are. You're blessed to know me, buddy. Nothing arrogant about that, I'm sure. I'm sure there was no arrogance in that. And Jesus was saying, hey, dude, you're not of Abraham. Uh, yeah, we are. Abraham's our father. Mm-mm. No, he's not. He's not your father. Uh, yeah, he is. I've got his blood. That don't make him your father. Let me show you. Let's go to John. John chapter 8. Remember something. John was a Jew. Throwing that out there. In other words, the guy that wrote this was Jewish. Okay? It wasn't some really mad, biased Gentile. Jesus was a genetic Jew. Let's start at 33. Jesus is speaking. Uh, Here's, let's see, 33. Let's go to 33. Uh, They, would be the Pharisees, answer him. We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. So how can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Yet I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. Who's their father? Abraham. Mm -mm. Not what Jesus said. And I don't care how many degrees and letters you have after your name. I'm taking Jesus' word over yours. They answered and said to him, this is verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. 
Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. That's basically a slight to him, right? Hey, pal, we don't know who your dad really is. And Jesus is saying, you're right. You don't. If God was your father, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I proceed forth and come from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Here it is. You are of your father, the devil. Who was their father? Abraham's our father. Jesus says, no, he's not. No, he's not. Well, yeah, he is. The promises are due to us. Oh, they are? They're due to you? You think you've done something? You think they're due to you because of the blood in your veins? You must be outside your mind. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Forty-seven says, he who is of God hears God's words, and that's why you do not hear, because you are not of God. It's not enough to be genetic Israel. It's not enough to have the right pedigree. It's not enough to have the right blood that flows through your veins. You must have the right faith. You cannot be justified by your works, and you certainly can't be justified by your pedigree. You can be justified one way and one way only, and that is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. To Him were all the promises made. In Him are all the promises, yes and amen. Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression, till the seed, singular, should come to whom the promise was made. Abraham was not who the promise was made to. Abraham's seed, singular, was who the promise was made to. Who are the promises of God made to? God. <laughs> That's who. Jesus Christ. How can you have access to the promises of God? You be found in Jesus Christ. It is not enough to have the right pedigree. Galatians 2, or 3, 26-29 says this, You're sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What? You're not sons of God through genetic lineage of Abraham. You are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... Therefore, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. What? There is neither Jew nor Greek. Please do not stand up and tell me that the Jews are the people of God and the church is the people of God. The Jews who believe and have faith in Christ are the people of God, no doubt. And the Gentiles who believe and have faith in Christ are the people of God, too. There is now, therefore, no Jew nor Greek. 29 goes on to say this. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And you are heirs according to the promise. Maybe I should underline and highlight that because of the place that we live and the time we live. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. How do you have the promise applied to you? It is not by the right blood in your veins. Get that through your head. It's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Period. That's my son. boy. Yeah, Dad. Let me read you what some folks have said about this over the ages. Because this is a huge turning point for us. I am not saying that God has no purpose for Israel. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that God is not using national Israel to fulfill prophecy. I'm going to let you just work through that and dig that out yourself. I am saying there is one way of salvation. And the reason that this makes me a little bit heated is because I have seen people, retirees, who have taken large sums of their life savings and they go, oh, you know what, I'm going to be blessed if I bless national Israel. So they'll take this huge lump of money that could go to spreading the gospel and they'll send it to a trust fund for people who live in Israel. I'm not kidding. And go, well, God's going to bless me. It's not enough to be of Abraham's physical lineage. And it never has been. 
Matthew Poole comments on this passage. The synagogue of Satan, this is uh, the passage in Revelation 3.9, right? In Revelation 3.9, Jesus says this, There are those who are of the synagogue of Satan. That was the uh, biggest Jewish temple at the time, okay? They say they are Jews, but they are actually liars. How could Jesus say that? Because he just told the Pharisees, If you say you're a Jew, but you don't have the faith of Abraham, you're a liar. Matthew Poole comments and says, The synagogue of Satan, he calls it, Natural Jews that oppose Christianity, who say they are a Jew, they are not. And Jesus says they lie. Why? Because Romans 2 says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and circumcision is not that of the flesh, but he is a true Jew who is one inwardly. Who is the, who is the true Israel? The Bible says not all of Israel is Israel. Well, that's kind of weird. Why? Because those who did not have faith are not the true Israel. Who's the true Israel? Those who had faith. Chilton says this, Dr. David Chilton, in his exhaustive commentary on Revelations, he says, again, there's no such thing as Orthodox Judaism any longer. There's no such thing as a genuine belief in the Old Testament that is consistent with a rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and God. Those who do not believe in Christ do not believe in the Old Testament either. And if they say they do, they lie. The God of Judaism is the devil. When Christ-rejecting Jews claim to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, Jesus says they are lying. Dr. Greg Bonson, who's one of my personal heroes of the faith, I know that'll make a lot of you mad, but he is, said this, racial Israelites who disobey God by rejecting Christ have had the light removed from them. They are not Jews in the true sense of the word. Whatever former blessing they may have had by natural descent has been given to the church. In other words, those who are Jews by race are not true Jews in God's eyes. Those who are true Jews in God's eyes are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The church, and by no means does this imply a denomination, has always been the Israel of God. It does not start in the New Testament, by the way. It's the same in the Old Testament, too. Those who had faith, in the coming Redeemer, God's Messiah, the Savior, that was the true Israel of God. Do you think every person who was born of Abrahamic descent is in heaven today? If you think that, you are vastly deluded. Because Jesus himself pronounced curses on some of them and said, You ain't going to heaven. You won't see me again. You're of your father the devil. Those were Jews he was speaking to. The church is Israel. This does not mean that the church replaced Israel. It did not. Nor does it mean that a natural Jew cannot be grafted back into the true Israel. Of course they can. They can be grafted back in, but only by bending their knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God established Abraham and his promises to Abraham's seed, singular. All those who believe like Abraham. God reckons their faith as righteousness, and they become children of the promise given to Abraham. They are then, therefore, the children of God. Dispensationalism has run amok so much here in the West that somehow we believe if you are a genetic Jew, you have like this elitist status. You know, there's other believers, and then there's you. God has special favor. No, he doesn't. That's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that God gave the gospel to genetic Israel and they didn't take it to the nations as they should. And they didn't obey him as they should. And they didn't live by faith as they should. And God finally says, enough. I'll send my son and I'll take this gospel to the nations. This covenant carries with it a series of blessings and curses, he says. I won't go into all of that. So what's the conclusion of this matter? Has the church replaced Israel or does national Israel still have a place in God's redemptive plan? I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. Romans says we were engrafted in to true Israel. And I won't tell you how to dice out all of that, but I will tell you this. If you're attempting to interpret Genesis 12 without reference to Galatians, without reference to Romans 2, without reference to Ephesians 1, you are doing very poor hermeneutical work. Why? You are pushing out 
you are turning away from what we call the analogy of faith. There's another big term, you can, you know, 50 cent term. What is the analogy of faith? Basically, it's sola scriptura worked out. What sola scriptura say? The scripture is the highest authority, right? The analogy of faith says this. The, the highest authority for interpreting any piece of scripture are other scriptures that bear down on that same topic. That's called the analogy of faith. It is our major hermeneutical or interpretive rule. All scripture must be interpreted in light of other scripture that bears down on the same issue because scripture is the highest authority for interpreting scripture. The Pope is not the highest authority. Paul Wilson is not the highest authority. Your pastor is not the highest authority. Church tradition is not the highest authority. The scripture is the highest authority. That's not to say that there aren't, aren't other authorities, but the highest authority is scripture itself. Okay, I think I've beat on that horse long enough. Let's go to one last thing, and then I will close. Uh, Verse 3b says this, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How is it that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed? It is not because Abraham had lots of children. It is not because Abraham's children became a huge and great nation. It's because there was a seed who came through Abraham. Who was that seed? Christ. Martin Luther said this, he said, this verse, quote, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, should be written in golden letters and extolled in the languages of every people. For who else has ever dispensed this blessing among all the nations except the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ? Revelation 5, 9 says this, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, it's Christ, of course, and to open its seals, for you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every people, and out of every nation. That verse also indicates that God intended Abraham's covenant descendants to have a missionary vision for other nations. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where's the missionaries then? Who's taking the gospel to the other nations? That was a foreign concept for the most part in the Old Testament. Were there ever Gentiles that came into the Jewish nation? Yeah, there were. Proselytes. Right? Ruth. I mean, and others. There are actually five in Christ's lineage. There are five people who are not Jewish. If you think the promises are to those who are Jewish by descent, you have a real problem with Jesus. Because there are five, they call them the knot holes. There's five knot holes in his family tree. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There you see was the missionary character of the seed, capital S, of Abraham, if they had only recognized it. They did not realize that God did not bless them for themselves alone, but instead for all the nations that in thee all the families of the earth should be blessed. Jesus Christ is that blessing. Jesus Christ is who the promises are to. Jesus Christ is how all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. That's Christ. I will curse those who curse you. That's Christ. Who's going to be blessed? Those who bless Christ. Who's going to be cursed? Those who curse Christ. Those who say, we'll not have this man to reign over us. Let us cast his bonds behind us and his cords asunder. There's an eternal fiery hell waiting for that man. Who is, the Bible says, the true Israel of God? Those who have faith in Christ. I love Israel. I'm glad it's there. I'm glad that Israel exists where it does today because there are Christians who live in the boundaries of Israel and they're very well protected. And that's a big deal over there because everybody around them is Islamic and you can get your head cut off for loving Jesus. I don't think Israel is blessed because we have blessed them. I think it's just the opposite. I don't think America is blessed because we have given so much money and support to Israel. I think it's just the opposite. I think Israel is blessed today because they've been so supportive of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think if you send $1,000, if you've got $1,000 to spend and you're not sure where to, where to go with it, 
You should go, well, I'll send it to, um, you know, to a Jerusalem trust. I'm also not saying you should curse Israel. I'm, are you glad that the Jewish nation existed? I think you would be. Your Savior came from that. Right? The entire Bible is written by Jewish men. The entire New Testament, right? There's not a book in there that's not. Are you glad for that? Yeah, of course. But if I have $1,000 extra, guess who, where it's going to go? Guess who I'm going to bless with that? The true Israel of God. I'm going to give it to somebody who's going to use it to spread God's glory. And by the way, holding up the Old Testament and rejecting Jesus Christ is not glorifying to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Jesus Christ is that provision. He is that blessing. And in him, all the families of the earth are blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Please utilize it, Lord, to stir up your people, to make them dig through your word, even if they are offended by the way that I have preached this today. Let them not be offended at you. Let them be hungry for your word, to wrestle through it, to confront head-on the tough truths of Scripture. Let us be a people known by your word. Not that we're monolithic in the things that we believe or the things that we say or our eschatology or whatever, but that, Lord, that we're a people who continually look into your word to see what it is that you have to say. We thank you for it, Lord. We ask you to um, bless this, this coming time, Lord, where we think again of you and the sacrifice you've made for us, how you are the blessing to all the nations. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.